Hello, I'm Mark Steiner, and welcome. We're about to have a conversation with Tom Reese. His latest book is called Black Count, Glory, Revolution, Betrayal, and the Real Count of Monte Cristo. Of course, he's the author of the best-selling The Orientalist, uh, and they've read him before in the New Yorker, New York Times, many of the places, and he joins us now to talk about this incredible new book, um, The Black Count. And Tom, welcome. Good to have you with us. Hi, hi, Mark. Great to be on your show. So, you know, I, I always, you know, we all know about Alexander Dumas and the Three Musketeers and the Count of Monte Cristo and the stories and all these as a child, even the stories were like, um, there used to be this guy in Baltimore who put out these cards about um, black heroes um, that was way back in the 50s. And on the card was Ale- Alexander Dumas, you know, and I remember that as a little boy. And... Um, so there was always this thing in your head that Alexander Dumas was half black or part black. But then, but who knew the story until this book <laughs> of his father? Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's it, even, even in France, um, this story is, is largely, um, it's just known as a kind of a rumor. I mean, and it's really not known that not only was the author part black, but that his father, who was a very dark-skinned black man and who was identified as the great black hero of the French Revolution, was, in fact, the inspiration for all these characters, like the Count of Monte Cristo and the Three Musketeers and a lot of their exploits. That's really something that I think people are learning about for the first time through my book, and I certainly spent the last half decade with my eyes kind of popping out of my head as I was reading these documents and (laughs) making these connections. It's really quite amazing. How did it first come to you? It first came to me as kind of the way you were describing your own um, enjoyment of the novels when you were a kid. I mean, I loved the novels of of Dumas as a kid, especially the Musketeers series, but also the Count of Monte Cristo. And I was sort of a bit of a Dumas fanatic, Uh so much so that I, I tracked down his memoirs. And Alexander Dumas wrote his memoirs when he was 45, and they stretched into 10 volumes and he didn't get past year 35, so he didn't even get to the point where he'd written a single novel. He's, he was not somebody, he's kind of took his time when he wrote things. And the incredible jewel in those memoirs is the first volume. There's a whole book where the author doesn't mention himself, and it's supposed to be an autobiography, so it's kind of interesting that he doesn't talk about himself. He just talks about this incredible man who was his father, and it just it blew my mind because reading about his father, it's like you're reading about the most outlandish character. Like he's decided to invent something that's even a little beyond the Musketeers and has Edmond Dantes in it and has dungeons and um, conquests of countries and uh, jungles, deserts, and incredible swordplay. And all of this done by a man who starts out in life as a slave, as the son of a black slave in in Haiti. It's all so outlandish that, frankly, I kind of wondered if he was making it up. (laughs) And um, being not only a lover of adventure stories, but also I was always a big history buff as a kid. I went and looked for, you know, I thought I would be able to find traces of this great warrior, General Alex or Alexander Dumas, in the history books. And there were enough traces so that you knew it was a real person. But it was as though this incredible man was sort of, you know, just written out of the standard histories, or he was just there in sort of uh, the footnotes or as, as a kind of a rumor. So I just, um, it's one of those things that always 
not bugged me, but just kind of stuck in the back of my mind that there's this incredible story here kind of hiding in plain sight. And, uh, well, I was really happy when decades later, <laughs> as, a, as a writer, I found that, um, you know, the story was still there hiding in plain sight. Nobody had looked looked into it. And I decided uh, maybe I'll be able to uh, crack this guy's life or find out about this guy's life. And I decided to go to the town where this man, General Dumont, died in 1806, and where his son, the great novelist, was born in 1802. And I went to this little town. It's sort of a gray, kind of very out-of-the-way place, about 100 kilometers um, northeast of Paris. And I show up, and I start to get to know the people in the town. And it's clear that the town has, just like everywhere else in France, they don't really have any memorials or knowledge about this great hero who had lived there. They have statues of the novelist everywhere and sort of pictures of him in every bar and drugstore in town. But this other man, the man who inspired him, he's just sort of, you know, even even in his own, the place where he uh, died and um, raised his family, he's mainly forgotten. But there are a few people there who had some interest. And there was a woman who worked for the town government who actually had been collecting documents on the Dumas family. And she told me that she had some really interesting stuff. And I was going to see her in, this is 2006, 2007. And I did this thing you should never do if you're hunting down any story. But uh, I kind of procrastinated and I thought, well, it's a 200-year-old story. What's going to change over a few months? So I sort of, you know, didn't get around to going back to the town until... January 2007, and when I showed up, I got some bad news, which was that the woman that I had been in touch with had suddenly died, mm. um, got suddenly gotten sick and died. And the people, she worked for the town government, so I was talking to people at the mayor's office, and the people at the mayor's office were oddly sort of stonewalling me, and I was basically just saying, look, I'm here about these documents, and she's been collecting them you know, with a using money connected to the town, and it's in it. You know, she works for the town. Can you help me get access to them? And they told me that there's a there's a problem. Um, this lady Elaine is a little bit paranoid, and she put everything of any importance into a safe. And I'm like, okay, great, we'll get into into the safe. And they said, well, there's a problem. Uh, Elaine didn't have any family, and she was quite secretive. And in fact, we've searched her office and papers and everything. She didn't write the combination to the safe down anywhere. So um, I showed up in the town, and at the beginning of my story, I've got, um, sadly, a dead lady, uh, a locked safe, and then this, what I would find out is this sort of, like, grinding Balzacian kind of French bureaucracy that was not very keen on letting me find a way to get into that safe. And, And after... I, I was just, I became obsessed and I hung around the town and um, it was like, my whole life is about getting into the safe. And I realized that the only way to get into it was actually to find a guy with a drill and a stethoscope or some other similar method and actually bust into it and um, and try to do it without burning the papers inside because you generate a lot of heat when you do that. Um, and uh, uh, that's that's what I did. And it turned out to be easier to bust into a safe than... I ever thought it would be, and the hard part was in getting into the government building, and that took uh, kind of 
some uh, a lot of finesse and uh, some good uh, strong liquor and the help of uh, some <laughs> very odd characters that I met in that town. So you, so you unveil for us a story of this incredible uh, former slave, son of a Frenchman and a slave woman, Marie Suzette Dumas, uh, who became this this swashbuckling, heroic general of mythic proportions when it came to fighting the battles of the French Republic. It's just... Well, it's also, it's incredible, you know, Mark, he became the equivalent of a four-star general at this time, at a a period when, you know, a a black man in in the United States couldn't really rise above shining a general's shoes. And the French saw themselves very much as as I found out doing this story much more than I, I ever knew, they saw themselves as bringing the American Revolution to Europe. And they saw themselves as really sort of the French Revolution was to them an extension of the American Revolution. We think about it very much in terms of the terror and the period where they started cutting heads off and stuff. But that was really a later phase of the revolution. And that grew out of an earlier phase when, you know, they were they had Thomas Jefferson over in Paris writing the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen. And oddly, what Jefferson and uh, the Founding Fathers would not do here, they were willing to do there, which was to extend the extend liberty to people of all colors. And you also, you know, what I found out was that my hero, Alex Dumas, was at the very center of this debate, although he waged the debate with his sword rather than with... Uh, um, arguments in the in the chamber. He during the revolution, he and some other mixed race swordsmen formed something called the Black Legion, that was there to kind of defend the revolution. Um, because one of the things that happened was every country in Europe attacked France as soon as they they didn't want a little America in the center of Europe. And Alex Dumas, in informing this all black French um, revolutionary legion. It was, it was actually nicknamed the, the French Legion, but the official name they used was the Legion of Free Americans. And that was really interesting because I found out that black people and mixed-race people in Paris in those years were actually called by everybody Americans. So, that, that was amazing, that story, that, that, that line you used in there, that, that when they said American, they meant people of color. Yeah, exactly. People of color were called Americans. And in fact, it's even, it's especially mind-blowing when I would like dig up like the uh, diaries of John Adams, you know, when he was over in Paris and he met some of these Americans. He met, you know, like Alex Dumas, Alex Dumas' fencing teacher, who was another um, man of color whose mother had also been a slave, who was actually the acknowledged greatest swordsman and greatest pistol shot in the world at the time. This guy, uh, who, and so he taught my man who Clearly, that's how they all they, they 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 were they were both very good, and they were two sons of slaves who found themselves on the eve of the French Revolution, practicing swordplay and riding and shooting right next to the Louvre Palace in in France. That that's kind of an amazing story in itself. That's even before the Revolution, and John Adams came there from you know Massachusetts, uh, certainly not a pro-slave. Guy, but he had never seen people of color who had this kind of um, uh, sort of 
central. He had never seen people of color who were this central and kind of glamorous and important in their roles in society. I mean, these guys were kind of at the center of not French court life, but at the center of this sort of very high revolutionary uh, circles on the eve of the Re- on the eve of the French Revolution. When the French Revolution exploded, guys like Alex Dumas suddenly had every opportunity in the world, and they they seized it. I mean, going back just for just a moment, before we just jump into the heart of uh, the the father of Dumas, Alex Alex Dumas, and the and the and, the, and his his what he did. You are painting a picture of this of France at that moment, and one of the things you wrote about in your book was that that that. The, as you wrote about it, you, said, you call it the world's first crusading civil rights movement was in the 1750s in France, and that exactly, yep. that was you know that it was there. Uh, that uh, uh, well, just talk a bit about that. Just setting that. that well, stage it's incredible. It's in more than a hundred years before um, the Civil War, our Civil War, before the you know Emancipation Proclamation, and um, decades before there was an abolition movement in England or the United States. At the, in the heart of, of, of the French power structure, there was this civil rights movement, basically the world's first civil rights movement, that was taking place in the country that benefited the most from slavery. The French Empire really built Versailles and built much of Paris on the backs of you know millions of African slaves that they were importing into the Sugar Islands. At that time, um, the French sugar colony of Saint-Domingue, which was later Haiti, was the most valuable piece of real estate on earth. Um, Sugar was valued in a way like oil was later. It was the oil of the 18th century, and this was like the Saudi Arabia of the French colonial empire. And the French Enlightenment figures knew that their country, that the France's sort of centrality and power was built on the cruelest and most lucrative slave empire in the world. And they took this basically and turned it into a metaphor to fight for the rights of man and to fight for specifically the rights of people of color who found themselves in France. So they're developed in France in the 1740s, even in 1730s, this incredible civil rights movement within the courts. And I found out that there was, although France under the kings didn't have a parliament like England, instead what they had was this really powerful Supreme Court system where there was this kind of Supreme Court of Paris and then there were a few other appellate courts. And these courts actually had a power that could challenge the French king. If they wouldn't ratify the laws that Louis, that King Louis passed, then the, the king couldn't govern. And so these incredible fights broke out about what the status of people of color were within France. And the battles kind of happened in the court system over decades, and the results were that the pro-civil rights people won in almost every case. And so people of color had a unique status in France, that as soon as they put their feet on French soil, a lawyer could bring their case into, even if they were being brought there as slaves, a lawyer could bring their case in front of the Paris court and could get them freed. And so by the 1770s and 80s, and Alex Dumas first sets foot on French soil in 1776, by that time there are a whole bunch of other young men who's, you know, who are of mixed race or 
sometimes who are um, uh, fully African, who have found their freedom and are living in the Paris area. And in fact, this gives rise to huge sort of racist paranoia that I found, you know, especially on the side of some of the people around the king who are trying to impose these race laws and to sort of cleanse France of the stain of, of having African people there. And they're incredibly afraid of miscegenation. They're very afraid that sort of the purity of the French culture and of French blood is being destroyed by all of these, you know, they, they sort of think of it as this sort of like immigration paranoia here. They're thinking of it as this mass wave of, of Africans who are coming into France and being given their freedom. <laughs> and uh, so Alex shows up in 1776, and we haven't even talked about his no, backstory, which is just... No, I was in, about to do that, but you're there, so go ahead. Oh, no, I'll let you go, go to that, but I'll just say he shows up when he finally does get to France, and when he gets to France, I found, I found the ship's record. He's actually listed in the ship's manifest as the slave Alexander. When the slave Alexander steps foot, uh, puts his foot on French soil in 1776, his life is instantly transformed, not only because of the um, wild circumstances going on within his own family, but also because of the equally wild and unlikely circumstances going on within France itself um, that people just do not know about now. Even the French do not adequately know this history for reasons we can get into. And we should talk about that. I mean, let's just, there's the father and there's the son and the mother and and their stories. I mean, this is his... Because even his father's story was an adventure. He even the adventure. Oh, yeah. is, is, it was as if the adventure of the father the, the, who, who almost disowned his son was in his son. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I didn't even know when I first started out looking for this. I had no idea that the backstory, I had to sort of keep it down to a couple of chapters at the beginning because it's so fascinating. When I started digging up the family records, and more than the family records, I found that the family records are played out in court documents and detective records because Alex Dumas' father, Antoine, was, well, he was this nobleman from Normandy who went to the French sugar colony to kind of seek his fortune because the French sugar colonies were like the Wild West of France. And he went there, but the thing is, he was this completely bad, through and through bad guy. Um, I mean, he was a complete rogue and a renegade, and he really went to the colonies to sponge off of his brother, who was an equally nasty character, but who was industrious. His brother was a big sugar and slave dealer, and in fact, here's the one of the first places I found direct, you know, mention of things that you'll find later in the novels. Um, the family were dealing sugar and slaves off a little cove in the north of Haiti called Monte Cristo. So mm-hmm. that's um, the that's what they were doing when Antoine came there. Antoine is Alex's father, and Antoine just threw a wrench wherever he went in, and he. He was there less than five years in the colonies before he had a huge blow-up with his brother. And Antoine was there to, in the colonies for for just five years before he has a fight with his brother, takes off into the forest with three of his brother's slaves, and is not heard again for almost 30 years. And I found out because the family and the government sent out people after him to try to figure out if he was still alive, and they sent a detective to sort of scour the islands, and uh, he was chased by the police. Nobody caught him, but they also couldn't confirm really what had happened to him. And what had happened to him, it turned out, 
was that he had gone to a more remote part of the island where a lot of the people living there were mixed race and where you kind of were left alone by the white government. He lived in the hills and farmed coffee. And that's where he had his son, Alex, in 1862. And so Alex is living with this renegade father who everybody thinks is dead. But then when he's 12 years old, his father gets word that there's a fortune to be had if he can get back to France because he's actually the eldest son. And kind of he decides, well, I'm going to go. I'm going to go try to get the fortune, and he goes incognito. Um, he goes to Port-au-Prince to try to get a ship ticket to France. He doesn't have enough money with him. He's such an sob. He sells his family, and then he sells even his favorite son Alex. But what I found out was that he didn't sell his son Alex into slavery exactly. He pawned him, because I found this thing that is basically an 18th-century pawn ticket. It's scrawled on a piece of parchment, and it says, mm. "I have the right." to buy him back if I inherit this fortune. And indeed, that's what happened. He, go, he went to France, and um, he, sort of like the Count of Monte Cristo, when I found the records of him returning to France, you know, people were just dumbfounded. There's this guy with a long, basically with a big beard, and he's sort of sunburnt, and he's an old man by this point, and he's come from the islands, and he's using a false name, but he says that he is the rightful heir to the um, title of Marquis, David de la Paitrie and to this castle and lands. And basically, he goes in and he grabs it all, and he uh, he turns himself into a marquis, and he gets rich, and he sends for his son, and, and, and here we are. And this is how Alex makes his way from, you know, living in a very remote place to and having been sold into slavery to suddenly he finds himself in 1777 living in the fanciest suburb in Paris next to Lafayette and... Um, a bunch of other very high-toned neighbors, and he is being trained at the Royal Fencing Academy. But as I said, he's being trained by another young mixed-race man, or not so young, another mixed-race man who has a similar background, and they are learning to fence there in the Tuileries Gardens. And he and he becomes this this man of uh, almost uh, of mythic nobility and honor and deep sense of morality. Um, yeah, that's 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 um, something that was so rewarding to find out. I didn't know I wouldn't find this about him. I mean, he was, on the one hand, a kind of super soldier, um, but you know, he was. I mean, he was actually one of the interesting testimonials among many that I found to how good a soldier he was was. I found the memoirs of this extremely racist Prussian officer oh, yes. who right. had only negative things to say about blacks and Jews and everything. And then somewhere in his memoirs, he <laughs> takes a pause and he says, but I have to say, there is this soldier, General Alex Duman, I, and I, I just have to confess, even though he's black, he may be the finest soldier in the world. So he just was almost like the kind of, he, he's... He's almost like the dream of special forces. He's a guy who every operation that he led in, in every terrain, he's successful and he's always out there himself. I mean, he manages to successfully um, do things in the desert, but also he's commander of 50,000 guys on a glacier in the Alps. And he figures out how to scale these ice cliffs and drive away the, the Germanic forces on top out of their fortresses. It's kind of like the guns of Navarone. I mean, he's always doing this stuff, but What's interesting to me, I wouldn't have been so 
attached to the guy if he was just the greatest soldier alive. Um, that to me, it was that he was doing this at a time when he had to take a moral stand against um, people. He had to be brave. He did this at a time when he had to be brave, not only against the enemy, but as much against his own side, because um, the reason why they're fighting all these wars is because the other countries in Europe couldn't stand the idea of having revolutionary France. They didn't want, you know, a little United States in the middle of Europe, so they all attack France. And in response to the attack, the French government starts to get more and more radical. And that's actually why they formed the thing that we all know of called the Committee of Public Safety. It wasn't just formed to purge, you know, to start cutting the heads off of aristocrats and of um, people they thought were counter-revolutionaries. Originally, it was formed to run the army, and they wanted to run the army in this really... They were, they were afraid that people like Alex Dumas were not going to follow the orders of the most fanatical revolutionaries enough. And basically what they did is they, the first guillotines they sent out were into the field, and they were threatening to cut off the heads of officers and generals in the Revolutionary Army if they didn't both follow orders and also deliver victory. So what I found, the military correspondence that Dumas had to exchange with his bosses, a lot of it, he's writing on a weekly basis multiple letters to Robespierre and um, the other guys on the Committee of Public Safety. And he comes very close to having his head cut off a number of times, but he's not somebody who will, he, he won't um, tolerate bloodshed. I mean, he, you know, famously burns a guillotine and gets the nickname Mr. Humanity, Monsieur de l'Humanité, at the height of the French terror, which should have been a death sentence for him, but I think it wasn't a death sentence because he was just so valuable as a warrior that, that they didn't uh, want to execute him. That's Tom Reese author of The Black Count, Glory, Revolution, Betrayal, and The Real Count of Monte Cristo. We have to take a very brief break. Don't go away. When we come back, we'll hear more from Tom Reese. Welcome back. I'm Mark Stein, and I'm speaking with Tom Reese, author of the book The Black Count, Glory, Revolution, Betrayal, and The Real Count of Monte Cristo. It's the biography of General Alex Dumas, father of the novelist Alexander Dumas. So, in coming back to the, this, this, this Alex Dumas as this general, and you talked about what the Prussian general had and how the the Austrians will come to in a moment called him the Black Devil for his bravery. Um, but you, and you, you, it was interesting aside. You said like he could be the modern day special forces. I mean, he he was known as not just a, as a general of thousands of troops, but he would rather go off and take a small band to actually make the fight himself whether it's taking a bridge that nobody thought could be taken or taking a, a, a mountain that nobody thought could be taken in the Alps, that he would go off and do this. He wanted the fight. He led the men. He didn't stand behind uh, his soldiers. He led them literally in front, sword swinging. And it's, so it's, an, it's, it's amazing. But then you have this other piece in the book when, uh, when uh, Alexandre Dumas was sent to fight in Egypt uh, and the confrontation... Uh, he has he has with uh, with Napoleon um, that was 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 just just remarkable. I mean, with the 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 quote you have when 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 Dumas actually literally confronts Napoleon, or Napoleon confronts Dumas, 
and the interchange yep. they have. And so, and, and so as, as it leads to this confrontation, Tom, take us to a bit of the backstory about Egypt, the, the battle there, why Dumas was there, and how this led up to this confrontation with Napoleon, which I think just is an amazing because it sets up who Napoleon was at heart, I think, and it sets up who Dumas was at heart. Yeah, it's the Egyptian expedition and their confrontation during it is just, you know, the story goes to even more surreal heights. So the Egyptian expedition happens in 1798. It's the first invasion of the Middle East since the Crusades by a European power. And it is a massive armada. Napoleon basically leads half of the French army in a flotilla of, you know, hundreds of ships over to Alexandria and decides to conquer slash liberate Egypt. At this point, the French only invade countries to liberate them and turn them into republics. That's what they've been doing. That's the whole point of the Revolutionary Army. But the idea that they are going to turn this ancient Middle Eastern country, Egypt, into a republic is, you know, it's surreal and it's also not true. I found that there were secret plans actually to turn it into a colony. Um, or not so secret plans, but Alex Dumas is taken along as the cavalry commander of the French troops. So he's going to um, command all of the cavalry. First thing that happens to him is he finds out that they haven't, you know, they arrive in Egypt and the cavalry has no horses, so they have to get horses um, and camels and whatever they need, and they attack Alexandria first, and they're riding to Alexandria together, and. The first sign of trouble I found in the uh, memoirs of Napoleon's personal physician, of all of all things, and it was an unpublished memoir that I, you know, was looked for for a long time because I knew that this personal physician of Napoleon had published a bunch of memoirs. I read through them, memoirs of the expedition, and I couldn't find any mention of Dumas. And I thought that's funny. He's the cavalry commander. I found this unpublished third volume of it, and. It's full of things, and the first mention of Dumas was um, when they first are marching over the sands to Alexandria. He describes the reactions of the Egyptians to seeing the French officers, and he says, the one among our generals whose appearance struck them, or sorry, he describes the French soldiers coming over the desert um, to Alexandria, and he describes the reaction of the Egyptians to seeing the officers. And here's what the doctor writes. Among the Muslims, men from every class who were able to catch sight of General Bonaparte were struck by how short and how skinny he was. The one among our generals whose appearance struck them much more was the general-in-chief of the cavalry, Dumas, man of color, and by his figure looking like a centaur when they saw him ride his horse over the trenches. All of them believed he was the leader of the expedition. And I think... You know, it was this sort of competition between their styles and the kind of huge glamour and impressive uh, way that, that, that Dumas carried himself that first started to tick Napoleon off a lot. But then I found uh, much more in the physician's diary because a few days later, after they conquered Alexandria, they're marching across to Cairo. And in the desert, Dumas publicly confronts Napoleon and basically says, you know, confronts him with what is the truth and what eventually came out. Um, he says, you know, what are we doing here? This isn't, uh, we're losing thousands of men to disease. And this is not, 
you know, it's transparently clear that we're not here to really liberate Egypt. We're not bringing the French Revolution here. We're here to establish some kind of a new empire in the desert. And you want to be the new Alexander the Great. And Dumas really publicly humiliates um, or Napoleon. I mean, he, he has the temerity to publicly confront Napoleon, which is probably the one thing you could never do to him. And um, he never, uh, that was a very fatal move on, on Dumas' part. And so, Tom, I think this is the point to kind of talk about that confrontation. And I know it's a long quote, uh, but that passage you found of the confrontation between Napoleon and Dumas says so much about their characters uh, and these two men. Um, and it leads us to kind of his end story and back to his family. So it, it, could you, would you mind saying that? I'm just reading that for us. Oh, sure. That's fine. So this is recorded by um, Dumas' confidant, General Dermancourt. And Napoleon sum- summoned Dumas into his tent. And Napoleon at this point is behaving like a dictator. He's basically setting up his coup d'etat in France that's going to happen the next year. As soon as they're in Egypt, he's behaving as though he's not just a fellow general of Dumas and the others, but that he's actually their supreme leader. Calls Dumas in and he says, General, you conduct yourself poorly with me and you're trying to demoralize the army. I know everything that happened in Damanhur. I will shoot a general as soon as a drummer boy, says Napoleon. Possibly, said Dumas. But I think there are some men whom you would not shoot without thinking twice about it. Not if they get in the way of my plans. Look here, General, Dumas said to Napoleon. A moment ago you spoke of discipline. Now you speak only of yourself. Yes, the Damanhur meeting took place. That was the place where Dumas confronted Napoleon about why they were there. And yes, I said that for the glory and honor of my country, I would go around the world. But if it was for the sake of your whim, just for you, I would stop at the first step. Thus, General Dumas, you divide your mind in two parts, said Napoleon. You put France on one side and me on the other. I believe that the interests of France should become before those of any man, however great this man may be, said Dumas. I believe that the fortune of a nation cannot be subdued to that of an individual. Thus you are ready to separate yourself from me, said Napoleon. It is possible. I don't agree with dictators, not Sulla any more than Caesar. Mm. And you ask for it? I ask to return to France, General, at the first opportunity that presents itself. I promise to put no obstacle in the way of your departure, said Bonaparte. Thank you, General. It is the only favor I ask of you, said Dumas. And I should say, before Dumas leaves Egypt, he helps Napoleon in many ways. He puts down, um, or sorry, before Napoleon, before Dumas leaves Egypt, he helps Napoleon in many ways. Among other one things that he does is he discovers a vast treasure, and rather than keeping one bit of it for himself, he turns it over to Napoleon. And I found the letter that he sent along with it. And the letter only says, you know, I can't, even though many of people here would just confiscate these jewels, I can't behave that way. Mm. But I would only ask that you remember that I'm giving these riches to the French state. And in the future, if my family is ever in need, and if I'm 
killed that you would care for Marie Louise and my children back in France. So that is that becomes important because of what happens next as soon as Dumas does leave Egypt. Yes, and so I do want to talk about that because he does leave Egypt, and, and I think that one of these things it shows we don't really talk about, but you talk about a lot in your book which is when he fought these, whatever wars he was in, he stopped his men from pillaging, which they thought was their right. I mean, he stood up for what was just. He, yes, absolutely right. Yep. He wouldn't take a dime for anything. And, and, and he was just, and he had that same loyalty to the woman that he fell in love with before he first went to war for the French Republic, remained loyal to her. They had children together. They constantly wrote to each one another. Their love affair was a huge part of the story uh, and, and how deep it was. Yeah, I mean, the the thing is that, that Alex Dumas is such a great character, I find, because not just because of what he accomplishes, but just because of his heart and because of the way that he lives, um, you know, not only for, for honor, but for love of his comrades and, as you say, of Mary Louise, who, you know, it's an incredibly romantic story. I, I found her letters when she first saw her future husband, General Dumas, it was back when he was a corporal, and he rides into her village. It's that little village that I started out in where I broke broke open the safe and actually found a lot of Mary Louise's letters in that safe, among other documents. And um, she described in a letter to her friend Julie that uh, their dragoons have arrived to save the town at the time the town was being attacked by brigands, and they'd sent these dragoons in. She sees this majestic black man, and she's never seen a black man before, but he's also just, he has this good look in his eyes. He just seems like such a good man, as well as be looking so romantic and heroic. And she just falls head over heels in love, and it's mutual, and um, it is a great love story that I was able to follow through all of their letters. And, of course, the fact that they were separated so much meant that the correspondence is even more poignant and um, emotional because Dumas then for the next decade is pretty much on campaign, you know, whether it's in Egypt or in the Alps or um, anywhere in Europe. And he's never, he's, he just has short periods of time at home. Um, and so he and Mary Louise constantly write to each other. There's a very moving part where I found out where he fought most um, valiantly in Italy was right after he was corresponding about the loss of their second child, um, which just broke his heart. Oh, yes, and right, right. When that, when when Dumas' heart was broken, I mean, he's just he was somebody who never he never let any circumstance break him. So he always found he's a very, you know, it's in, really it's inspiring to see a guy who I think this is this legacy of coming up from slavery from the absolute bottom. No matter what life threw at him, and it threw a lot, um, as we're about to get into, but the first really harsh thing that it threw at him was the death of his daughter. And um, he just, uh, you know, he never lets it, it never lets it swerve, sorry, he never lets anything make him swerve from his path. And he never takes anything out against anybody else. At that time, he was, after all of his exploits in Italy for a while, he was given the post of military governor of this huge area right next to Venice. And as you said, half of the French army was pillaging, and Napoleon was encouraging them to pillage um, all of Europe and to send all the paintings and the sort of Titians and Michelangelo's and whatever they got back to um, 
Paris and also to steal all of the food of uh, and 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 everything. And I found these incredibly moving letters from the people that Dumas had under his control in Italy, the Italians who would just, you know, had wrote back, you know, what a blessing it was for us that of all the people who could have been our conqueror, it was you because we met in the midst of, of, of all these wars. We meet one um, honest and good-hearted man. And, you know, you actually, there are all these incidents of how Dumas kept his own soldiers, you know, from from stealing a dime from anybody. And I even found letters where he, you know, basically threatened to personally throttle any man in the French army that he caught stealing from anybody who they had under their their power. But um, so let, let's talk a bit about Tom um, towards the end of this about his leaving our uh, conversation together, um, his leaving Egypt and his imprisonment, his then the the, the strange things that happened to him there and his kind of tortured path then to freedom and back to his family uh, and how I think one of the important pieces of this story also is that how France turned from this place of the great National Colonial Institute and and uh, fighting racism to becoming as racist as the rest of the world. Yeah, even more so in some ways. Yeah, what's incredible, so the, Mark, the document that, uh, the probably the most important document that I found in that safe that I uh, got into was the handwritten memoir of Alex's imprisonment in a dungeon in the south of Italy, and it was written in Alex's own hand. Um, and no one had seen this for at least 150 years, but there's one man who definitely saw this, and that was his son, the novelist Alexander Dumas, because when you read this document, this is clearly the inspiration for the Count of Monte Cristo and for the beginning of the Count of Monte Cristo and Edmond Dantes's ordeal in the dungeon. But, you know, up until this point, Dumas, Alex Dumas' story and his life and his exploits are really like the inspiration for the, for the, you see all these things that are like the Three Musketeers. It's all uh, adventure and uh, a lot of high points. And, um, you know, even though there's tragedy, it's mostly triumph. But as soon as he gets on this ship back from Egypt, uh, his life starts to fall apart. And the first thing that falls apart is the ship. So he gets on a ship that turns out to be in Napoleon, won't give him a good ship to take back from Egypt. He has to rent one himself. It's um, It starts to capsize in a storm. And um, the guys on board, they are fighting for their lives. They throw everything overboard, and they have to make for land at the closest port, and they land at the south of, very southern tip of Europe, on an area that they think is occupied by Italian Republican forces, but in fact, it's occupied by this very shadowy army that is called the Holy Faith Army, which turns out to be basically kind of a combination of a terrorist group and a mafia band that has ties to the, you know, Catholic Church on the one hand has also got ties to the King of Naples, but it's all it's a very shadowy organization. They basically take General Dumas and they think they have this very high value prisoner and they're interested in getting something out of the French government for it. But by this point, Napoleon has turned himself into the dictator of France and he is more than happy to have General Dumas out of the way. So General Dumas languishes 
in this dungeon in more than languages, he goes through this terrible or- ordeal that I, you know, read blow by blow in his own description of it. I mean, he's poisoned and he's attacked and he's just such a robust and uh, he's got an incredibly strong spirit as well as body and he survives this um, for two years. Um, and uh, some really interesting things happened to him in the prison too, but we don't have time to go into that. But um, he survives, but when he gets out, as you say, he gets out in 1801 and comes back, makes his way back, leading an army of uh, what he does is he gathers up all of the French veterans who, sorry, he gathers up all of the French prisoners from Italy and Southern Europe, and he marches these guys, these wounded veterans, back to Paris. Sort of his last, um, you know, even when he's coming out of prison, he wants to have a command, so he brings mm-hmm. them back to Paris. But he comes back to a country where Napoleon is changing everything, especially in terms of race. And he's setting the clock back and, in fact, making it worse than it ever was in France. And um, the same month that Napoleon creates the Legion of Honor is the month that he reinstates slavery in France and creates a series of race laws that are really like, when you read them, they're like the model for the Nuremberg Laws in the 1930s against Jews. They're quite, they sort of amount to, I mean, there are far fewer blacks and people of color in France, but what they amount to is sort of a systematic purging of these people with African blood from positions of influence in France. And as you alluded to, there's the French have been making incredible strides during this decade. They've, they've already they've, they founded the first um, integrated school system in Paris. I mean, they actually have like elite schools where uh, black and white kids are studying together. Uh, I mean, this is 150 years before Brown v. Board of Education. It's kind of amazing um, when you read about it. It's a very sort of heartening story when you read about it, but these schools, which I only discovered because I discovered the story of their unraveling, along with the unraveling of General Dumas and the other black officers. I mean, um, the laws that are passed include... Uh, banning mixed mixed race marriages, and so of course Marie Louise and Dumas suddenly have an illegal marriage. There's even a law passed saying that um, officers with African ancestry are are not allowed to live within a certain radius of the city of Paris, and that happens to be, uh, you know, applied to Dumas because that's where his house is. Mm-hmm. So he's living, and I found that out through a very poignant letter that he, he I mean. Uh, General Dumas wounded just back out of the dungeon. The next year, he's forced to write a letter to Napoleon and the government saying, can I please have an exception from this law and allow, be allowed to stay in my house, even though I'm a black man? So, you know, this is a guy who five years earlier was the great hero of the revolution and celebrated openly for being uh, not only such a great hero, but as I say in my acknowledgments, or sorry, no, sorry, as I say in the uh, epilogue of my book, the first writings that I find about General Dumas celebrate him as um, a man of color, um, celebrate him as being this great action hero and this great fighter for, for liberty. And it's even more important because he is black. Actually, can I read um, a, a line or two from this, Mark? Yes, please do. 
Okay, because I, 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 I find this quite remarkable. This is this document that I found published in 1797 called General Alexander Dumas, Man of Color, and it's published by the French military. And it says, It is without distinction to individual status or rank that the history of great republics consecrates the memory of deeds to posterity. If in the course of engraving the annals of a great people, its faithful chisel should cover a hero, a man of virtue, with immortal glory, it does not stop to consider whether this man was born in Europe or under the blazing sky of Africa, whether his face is the color of bronze or something closer to ebony. A Negro's feats of courage are every bit as deserving of admiration as those of a native of the old world. Indeed, who has greater right to public respect than a man of color fighting for freedom after having experienced all the horrors of slavery? To equate the most celebrated warriors, who has greater right to public respect than the man of color fighting for freedom after having experienced all the horrors of slavery? To equal the most celebrated warriors, he need only keep in mind all the evils he has suffered. And then they say, go on to say, this is the way Alexander Dumas, citizen of color, mulatto and mixed race, born in Saint-Domingue, has always acted since the beginning of the revolution. And, um, you know, it, enter, it, it, it ends, um, you know, by recounting some of his exploits and saying a Republican general never marches behind his soldiers or quoting, quoting Dumas saying that. And what I found was that this document was then rewritten after the Napoleonic race laws. It was rewritten and republished in um, another army publication just a few years later without even mentioning the fact that Dumas was mixed race at all. It just talks about what a great soldier he was. And that was after they had stripped him of all of his rights and actually even denied a veteran's pension to his family. So that's why the novelist Alexander Dumas grew up in great poverty. Marie Louise was forced to essentially, you know, open up the equivalent of a kind of cigarette and news newsstand to kind of support the family barely. And, uh, you know, she kept writing letters um, for the rest of her life, trying to get her husband's name reinstated in the, um, in the roles of revolutionary generals with, with no success. Napoleon even went so far as having General Dumas' face painted out of one of the great paintings that were done of the Egyptian expedition. And it was one of Dumas' exploits. He's at the center of it. And Napoleon ordered that it be repainted with a blonde, blue-eyed cavalry officer to, mm. you know, blot out the uh, man of color at the center of the picture. So he was almost, it was almost like a Stalinist uh, erasure of him. Well, what I can say, Tom Lee, is what, what, um, what you've done uh, is to, to help the novelist Alexander Dumas do what he tried so desperately to do and, and, and bravely to do, which is to bring his father, uh, the black count, Alex Dumas, to all of us as a, as a, as a living monument to, our, to who we are as human beings. And I just want to thank you so much for you taking our time today and for the book, Black Count, uh, Glory, Revolution, Betrayal, and the Real Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, Tom Lees has just been amazing. I appreciate all the time you've given us. Oh, hey, thanks, thanks a lot, Mark. It's been really good talking to you.